Hello and welcome to the program. With me today is Hugh Watkin. Hugh is a very well-known risk security analyst covering Southeast Asia and beyond. He spent a lot of time with Thomson Reuters and he's since set up his own company, which he's going to tell us all about. Hugh, welcome to the program. Well, Luke, and thank you. Pleasure to be here as always. It's amazing over the years, particularly the last five years, how politically and from a security perspective, things have changed in Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, for that matter, the type of governments we have. How are you viewing these changes and the impact they're having on society across the board? Well, I think what we're really seeing um, in common across across the world, basically, is a, is a return to, return to authoritarianism, um, which is, is kind of obvious. And less obvious, perhaps, is a sort of a, a recidivism, if you like, to the types of government that we see, we've seen in Asia, particularly post-colonial, uh, which is, again, a very sort of authoritarian form of government, but a very traditional form of, of government administration, which is heavily based on client-patron networks and right. the uh, the benevolent dictatorship, which is fine uh, as long as the uh, dictator remains benevolent. But as soon as that stops, um, then there are significant uh, issues uh, that arise. And of course, we're seeing that in Cambodia, in Thailand, Myanmar has not lived up to expectations. Uh, seeing a lot of issues beyond Southeast Asia here in Hong Kong. And one phrase you like to use quite often is a crisis of integrity and how what governments say no longer holds the same weight. And that goes for the institutions as well. Yeah, indeed, because I think, you know, uh, again, I think we have to put it into a historical perspective. And if you like... uh, uh, desires for the democratic model here in Asia in particular were perhaps a little naive, uh, certainly very short-lived. We saw an emergence uh, of uh, ideas of good governance of independent institutions, which actually are conflict resolution mechanisms. But we've, we've seen that roll back significantly um, in, in particularly the last 10 years. And um, again, to what I was saying, to this sort of emergence of, of uh, client patron networks as a way of governing uh, countries and, and regions. But of course, you know, without those institutions, it, it, it leaves a, a lot of uh, room for cronyism. And of course, uh, it, it begs the question of, uh, in this international economy, what then do uh, you know, corporations, companies from, from the West, how do, they, how do they deal with these administrations? That was my next question, actually. How do they deal with that? Well, I think we're seeing it's a, 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 a sort of a compliance with, uh, with the, the way things operate on the ground and hence the crisis of integrity. Um, as you mentioned, I've been involved in the last 10 years very much with um, you know, risk analysis, um, particularly reputational risk analysis. And there was a time, uh, you know, 10 years ago where that was rather important um, because there are significant reputational risks uh, involved with you know investing in in these countries across Southeast Asia, particularly you mentioned Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, Philippines. <laughs> but of course, what then does a chief executive officer do if they are confronted uh, with um, you know uh, dealing with basically corrupt governments? Um, it, it's it's compromising, and it's uh, also getting harder from the perspective of home in, in America, for instance. Uh, they're very heavy on compliance by their companies when they're working abroad, particularly in regards to felicitation fees, which is Hmm. really a polite word, word, I guess, for a bribe. And as the home governments in the West come down harder, 
there seems to be this push in the other direction and that's just making business a, a damn sight harder than what it was. Meanwhile, the Chinese are coming in where, they're, where they, their companies don't have any qualms in uh, this sort of business. Yeah, well, that's true. And, and, and the, the, the rise of China as a, as a global influence has complicated this significantly. But, you know, you've seen, uh, you know, the finance sector of Singapore, for example, mm-hmm. uh, heavily engaged in places like Myanmar and Cambodia. Uh, with the, the bit of the fig leaf argument, if you like, that uh, that you know you, you can't change things unless you engage, I think that's uh, yeah, a bit of a furphy, frankly. Right. Um, but um, yeah, what do you do? Uh, it's also getting harder to engage, as we see nationalism uh, rearing once more. So not only do you have governments saying, cracking the whip and saying you must behave, we also have the home population which is saying we've had enough of globalisation, uh, we're more interested in uh, producing goods or trading within our own. And again, that's just adding to the kind of the, the, the massive migraine that uh, CEOs are having when it comes to uh, augmenting business. Yeah, it is. You know, it's, again, uh, there's a lot of a sort of uh, falsehoods uh, used in justifying this. I mean, this notion of engagement um, it, it it hasn't worked, patently hasn't worked, right. um, and um, and yet uh, you know by by engaging in these economies and with these governments, um, you are in a sense propping up these authoritarian regimes. The question of nationalism, of course, is is interesting because it's it's the first and and, and sharpest tool in the authoritarian box um, right. in terms of uh, you know um, justifying a certain course of action. Um, which but is what, again, which is what we're seeing in China, with um, as the economy heads down and growth is expected, will be lucky to be around five percent. Which again, it comes back to the crisis of integrity and do you believe the numbers? And my suspicion is is that China's probably in a recession, but uh, that's happening across the board, and then that feeds into the nationalism uh, perspective. Well, again, I mean, we we can broaden this sense of a crisis of integrity, if you like, in terms of notions that it's a level playing field economically, internationally. Demonstrably, it isn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, China is uh, still an increasingly and increasingly a a state-controlled and a state-directed economy. And so in this so-called world of globalisation, uh, you know, the West, uh, if you like, and the high moral ground that it's supposed to take is at a distinct disadvantage right. in terms of engaging on a, on a, on a global uh, playing field. What is the resolution to it? Um, I think we're that, going is, through... that is a difficult question to answer. Well, I think we're going through the cycles and we had the post-Cold War cycle with globalisation, economies opening up, great hopes for democracy, which I do believe that most people in Southeast Asia and beyond, including here in Hong Kong, would prefer to the authoritarian type of governments that have been dished out with. But the cycle keeps, keeps to be continuing around as we revert backwards. And the great question is, where do we go next? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because let's look at it, say, over the last 30 years, there's been sort of three significant uh, global um, phenomena, if you like. First, of course, was the collapse of um, uh, of communism and, the, and what some people called the end of history. Uh, mm. That was always rather an ambitious statement, I thought. Secondly, then we had the, the Asian financial crisis, which I think uh, caused a lot of introspection, particularly in this part of the world, in, in terms of, okay, how do we do business? Uh, what is the nature of uh, transparency in the way we do business? 
And um, thirdly, the global financial crisis tended to put a break on the developments that we saw with the end of communism and the Mm -hmm. triumph, uh, so-called, of democracy. Uh, Secondly, the the Asian financial crisis, 97-98, where people were again uh, introspective on the way business was done and how politics played a role. Uh, And then a disillusionment with uh, the... Uh, the West, which started, I guess, with uh, you know, the invasion of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and ended with the global financial crisis where people, perhaps quite rightly in this part of the world, said, well, what are you guys talking about? Mm-hmm. We're going back to the way we did it before. It works for us. Right. Take us through some of the countries that you've covered over the years. And you spent a lot of time in Cambodia. You've spent a lot of time in Malaysia and that kind of pocket of mainland Southeast Asia. How do you think they will fare over the coming years? I'm quite pessimistic, actually. As you said, I've spent 25 years in Asia now, much of that in the sort of Indochina area, uh, Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, Indonesia. Uh, sorry, Indonesia in and out, but um, certainly um, Vietnam and Hong Kong. and. I look at the Indo-Chinese countries in particular, and as I said, I'm very, very, very pessimistic. Cambodia in particular, I've done a bit of work there lately, and it just strikes me that they've embraced a historical um, political model which has not served the country well in the past. And uh, I fear that um, they're setting themselves up for another catastrophe. I think the same thing is also true of Myanmar. Um, Mm -hmm. where, again, uh, there was a lot of hope, false hope perhaps. Um, It's a big thing to change these thoroughly ingrained cultural attitudes. But, um, you know, uh, what we're seeing in these places is an enrichment of the elites, the political slash business elites, and they are one and the same. And frankly, all the economic and health indicators for the average people have not improved appreciably at all. Uh, you have a small emergent middle class and of course they're the ones you've really got to watch if you're an authoritarian uh, because they're the ones that revolt if their expectations are disappointed. But I'm not, um, I'm not very optimistic for the region at all and particularly with the, the hand of authoritarian China and let's face it, it is an authoritarian system. Um, it's not all bad but I would go back to what I was saying that uh, the benevolent dictatorship model is great as long as the dictator stays benevolent but when they don't uh, you're looking at um, um, you know uh, some very severe repercussions then of course you've got the overlay again of this return to a cold war dynamic uh, geopolitically and um, it's it's we live in dangerous times right and you mentioned before how western governments in particular had enabled this kind of crisis of integrity to evolve. What we, what about the role of the international institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, the ADB, Asian Development Bank? Uh, one classic example of that is the construction of dams along the Mekong River, where five countries are being, the water flows are being severely disrupted. There's 70 million people who rely on the Delta to live hand to mouth, and they're being treated with complete disregard, yet the World Bank and the IMF and the ADB and others have had no problems in throwing billions of dollars at these governments that want to build these dams. Um, 
and the construction companies and where the money goes is always dubious. And it's a little bit like, so how many dams can we build? What is the future for these institutions? Are they actually really institutions these days, given that um, not a lot of good seems to have come out of it? Yeah, look, I think, you know, the intention was always good with these institutions. They come very institutionalised over time, don't they? And I think uh, uh, their perspectives are very narrow, often. And uh, the institutional prerogative is often self-serving. That's not to say that, um, you know, it's all bad, but certainly... Uh, you know, the Chinese are mimicking these sorts of institutions, if you like, and, and are finding a very receptive audience. Again, because, you know, a lot of the uh, ideological drive behind these uh, Western institutions has been very rationalistic in terms of the economic approach. It's, um, you know, it, it, it pushes austerity. Um, they're quite harsh in their terms. And, um, of course, there are other options now, um, again, particularly from China. So I think, uh, I guess, the bottom line in terms of answering your question is that I think that they're increasingly losing their relevance in this part of the world. And and perhaps that's deserved in some ways, because I think, um, as, as you uh, insinuated, that their vision has been very narrow. Uh, visions of what is uh, an economic good, for example, build a dam, have an electricity. Well, is that really appropriate, given the bigger picture? Um, right. I guess, you know, uh, we learn as a species as time goes on, and we hopefully learn from our mistakes, but... Um, one has to question whether uh, the model that uh, these institutions have been promoting over the decades, post-World War II, frankly, whether that's still relevant. Okay. How much of that reflects uh, American foreign policy? We've seen successive American governments, not just Donald Trump, but Barack Obama, I don't think, covered himself in glory when it came to foreign policy and East Asia. Uh, the institutions, where America goes, the institutions tend to follow and their policies reflect American foreign policy. Mm. So uh, America, and America has been criticised for its attitudes to East Asia. Is that likely to change? Uh, we are seeing the trade war with China, which could be a, have a, a big determining effect. Mm. Oh, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Let's, let's face it, organisations like the World Bank and the IMF were, were created to, to recreate post-World War II world in, in America's image. Um, and uh, you know, having having won a, a brutal conflict, uh, which you know, was a conflagration, a global conflagration, they were well in, in a position to do that. Particularly when you had an ideological divide. I think there is a certain complacency which has crept in um, since the late eighties, early nineties, when again the end of history. But I think the Americans, in particular, and to a large extent countries like Australia um, and the West in general have become a bit complacent. The engagement with China over the years was always about, eventually the assumption would be that you'd have a democratisation in China. That that hasn't worked. Um, in fact, it's gone the other way. Well, indeed. I mean, it's a bit backlash against it. So what do you do now? China is extremely powerful economically, increasingly militarily. It's more assertive, much more assertive than it has been in the past. Does its uh, economic clout and the uh, assertiveness that's coming, particularly from uh, paramount leader for life, Xi Jinping, uh, is that justified? 
given their force projection, given what their capabilities really are? Well, of course, one of their best capabilities, of course, is having this large Asian landmass against them, so they can theoretically fall back to the mountains, as they always have. Um, a very tough military situ- uh, equation, actually, to take on China in a conventional war. I'm also is- thinking about China's ability to take on the West, particularly in regards to, uh, say, Taiwan, and the potential ramifications for what's happening in Hong Kong. But uh, we'll get to Hong Kong in a minute. Well, you know, I, I guess it, it comes down to questions of political will in the West, which is is not the same question in China, right? Of course, and uh, you know, again, getting back to you know the, my earlier concerns, what we're seeing in China is this uh, promotion of rampant nationalism, um, which is very, very dangerous, particularly in a in a political system which is not accountable to the potential victims of any right. <laughs> of any conflict. Um, and I think you're seeing that uh, an illustration of what I'm trying to express now. Uh, with the ongoing trade dispute, um, we like to call it the trade war, which is perhaps a little bit dramatic, but certainly the dynamics underpinning that, right. underpinning that, uh, demonstrate uh, my point in that uh, Trump's, uh, the Trump administration's uh, bargaining position uh, is significantly weakened by uh, domestic. Um, political imperatives right and uh, those those uh, weakening influences that those domestic political imperatives don't apply to china which again uh, is uh, all policies are defined um by the communist party in terms of its uh, continuing hold on power right That's what it all boils down to but of course they're not accountable to their electorate um, which gives them a considerably more uh, wiggle room and certainly more time to maneuver it also puts them the west it also puts them at odds with uh, the people of Hong Kong who are voting with their feet, whether it's in demonstrations or packing their bags and heading for another country. Uh, how, how do you see events shaping up, particularly over the last four months? The uh, chief executive, Carrie Lam, has shelved the uh, extradition bill, but it hasn't made any difference with the hardcore of protesters who are demanding democracy and many are seeking independence. I don't think that's possible. But given the state of the world, perhaps anything is possible over the coming years. Well, indeed. Look, I, th- I think you know, realistic, pragmatically even, we have to accept that you know Hong Kong is a part of China. But there was a deal. There was. There was a deal. And I think it's incumbent on the Chinese administration to honour that deal, if not for their own self-interest in, in, in being a trusted partner in the world. Well, that comes back to the crisis yeah. of integrity. Well, indeed. Um, I think that in Hong Kong is a very unique situation, and, and frankly, it, it's very hard to predict how this will turn out. But, and again, it ties into what we were saying about Chinese nationalism earlier. There's a fundamental misunderstanding um, between mainland China, northern China, and the southerners, the Cantonese. Uh, mutually unintelligible language, uh, centuries of... Uh, Conflict. Different world view. I was going to say conflict. Yeah, well, conflict. And indeed, and the emperor was always far away. But the Cantonese... No, sorry. The, the, emperor, the, uh, uh, the mountains are high and the emperor is far, one says, when the tax man comes. Sure. And indeed, and, and these people have always had a strong... Uh, the, the southerners, the Cantonese, for want of a better expression, but we're talking about Fujian um, and, and, you know, the southern coast of, of, of China. These are people who, for, you know, 
at least 100 years have been world travellers. They've been out and about in the world. They've set up the Chinatowns. You know, they speak a different language. It's, you know, there's lots of different languages, of course, in China. Uh, it's not the, the, you know, the Putonghua, the Mandarin. Uh, their world experience over generations has been different. You know, they've been out in the world. Hong Kong is this uh, entrepot, this cosmopolitan place, and has been so since its inception as a British colony. Uh, a centre for trade, bringing together people from all over the world, you know, um, and uh, it's a different experience. And um, so I think the, 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 there's, a, there's a mindset in China where people look at what's happening in Hong Kong now and, and, and cast the Hong Kong Cantonese as ungrateful. But of course, their experience is different. You can understand how people might well respect the party in China because it has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of right, poverty. Right, but they weren't the among them, and they were the ones who fled here. Yeah, but the Cantonese have had a different experience. Now, democracy, of course, is, is not a function of, 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 of Hong Kong's history, but... It was promised. Uh, it was promised, but I think uh, having an administration that demonstrated integrity has been a very important part of Hong mm. Kong's self-image. Rule of law. Rule of law, institutions, which again, uh, what are what are these institutions of governance? They're essentially um, mechanisms for conflict resolution without violence. Right. Right. Because you can go to an independent body uh, that bases its decision on, on, on jurisprudence and a precedent, and uh, there is a body of law which, which resolves conflict. Indeed, and that's trust in the courts, it's trust in the policing yeah. system. And, and, and without that, what is the option? Well, again, we get back to that notion of the benevolent dictator, and it's fine if the dictator is benevolent. If they're not, uh, and they become dark and evil, what do people do? Well, they rise up. And differences are then resolved through conflict, uh, not through conciliation. Right. And I think that's an essential difference. Now, so again, getting back to my point, there, there is a, a, a different of understanding, a different in worldview, and, and very little appreciation of the other uh, point of view. How do you think... Hong Kong will fare over the next six months? It's a, true, it's a <laughs> crucial question because we seem to be standing at the precipice and not dreadfully sure whether China's going to come in and push everybody off. Well, yes, I think, I, 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 I think, I hope that we're not going to see an escalation of conflict and an escalation of, of heavy-handed tactics. I think my personal view is that a, a, a repeat of Tiananmen is probably unlikely here in Hong Kong. In just the the task of containing unrest, um, and the, the protesters have been very good. They haven't they haven't mimicked what ha uh, the protesters in Tiananmen Square at all. They've been or, or uh, in other cities, leaderless in, in China when it happened. Well, indeed, and they were bottled up in, in, in town squares and, and centralised places, easy Sitting to contain, targets. Yep. Uh, easy to, to uh, crush, basically. Uh, I think one of the, the, the signatures of, of this unrest is, is the sort of flash mob mentality. Of, you know, so what does that take? Well, it takes, what, half a million mainland troops to, to lock down Hong Kong. Which would be the equivalent of, uh, in a population of seven odd million people that's a lot of truth yeah, it is and 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 there's and there's an awful lot of international bad blood that will come of that 
However, we all saw with uh, Tiananmen Square that the, the international bad blood probably lasted about 12 months right. uh, before uh, there was a process of re-engagement, again, under this, this, this concept, well, we have to engage to change. Um, I think that's probably uh, pretty self-serving. Um, but then again, uh, for countries like the States, Australia in particular, uh, they're now so dependent on their economic relationship with China that it's uh, there's really not much uh, practically that can be done. Right. Um, uh, ask the dirty question. It's widely believed that Xi Jinping is uh, adamant about bringing Taiwan into mainland China and its politics, and what he would say is... Uh, having it back. How much is Hong Kong a sideshow to that? And is Taiwan still the main event in terms of uh, Beijing politics? In some senses, Hong Kong looks like a proxy, doesn't it? Um, The problem with China, let's face it, is that it's a bit of a black box. (laughs) And there are many, many people, myself included, who've made made something of a living out of uh, pontificating about it. But... uh, the whole system's so opaque that nobody really knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Not even your you know, most studied and experienced sinologists really know what's going on. It comes down to reading the tea leaves. Um, I don't think one should underestimate the, uh, the, the, the depth and the strength of Chinese nationalism as far as the party's concerned. Uh, it's sort of... Uh, Number two, isn't it, after economic well-being in terms of uh, the legitimising force right. for the Chinese Communist Party. Taiwan, again, um, uh, strategically uh, separated from China by a body of water. It's not an easy thing to do, uh, to take it over militarily. Um, there, are, there are huge ramifications uh, for the global economy and for politics in the coming decades if in fact they were to to be that adventurous. Um, But, um, you know, they they can keep pressure on otherwise. I I don't think one should underestimate the determination and the patience um, in terms of the mainland's uh, ultimate objective of of reunifying Taiwan with with the mainland. And along the same terms, there's, there's very little chance that they will... Uh, you know, allow even a semblance of independence uh, to Hong Kong. I think, uh, you know, if, I'm a, if I was a betting man, uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, put my money down on that outcome. Right. And one last question in regards to China. Xi Jinping, he's been around now for about six years. It's over that period that we've seen countries like Cambodia, Myanmar, uh, Thailand, Philippines all revert to authoritarianism in a particularly nasty way. How much uh, an example has Xi Jinping been in these other leaders in Southeast Asia and how they've approached their oh, respective I leaderships? Yeah. I think unquestionably uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's provided succour these people um, but uh, as has the you know diplomatic uh, military and, and financial advantages of, of of playing the Chinese game um, uh, I wouldn't like to <laughs> to be an Asian leader at odds with Beijing um, that would be pretty tough and I think a lot of people are, are um, and a lot of leaders in the region uh, are playing a very delicate balancing act um, 
but um, certainly I think uh, this sort of uh, Confucian authoritarian model um, uh, dovetails quite well again with sort of the traditional um, political structures and processes that you've seen in Asia uh, for time immemorial basically. And it looks set to uh, continue at least for the short to medium term. Yeah I think so. And on that note, Hugh Watkin, thank you very much. Thank you, Luke.